Hello, Claremont. Welcome to yet another episode of Claremont Speaks. I'm Russ Binder, your host as always. And in this campaign season, I have the pleasure, the honor, and the privilege of interviewing one of my favorite past guests, and I think a favorite of the listeners as well, if the number of downloads is any indication. I have with me today, Stephen Lanusa who is the president of the Claremont Unified School District. He's a in-classroom teacher for over 30 years and has served on the school board how many years? I've been on the school board for 16 years. So you're just getting warmed up, right? Your probation period is almost over? I would say so. Okay, very good. I'd certainly say the honeymoon is over. Now you're going for another four. Yes. You did an absolutely brilliant job last time of explaining the districting system. So you're not necessarily running for president again. You're running for being the representative for... For Area 4. For Area 4. But yeah. I understand there was some crossover like we've discussed before. So each school board area has at least two schools within it. And each school has at least two school board members representing it. Ah, Okay, so then what schools then would be in your area? Within my area would be Condit, Chaparral, and Claremont High School is geographically located within it. Of course, Claremont High School has students from the entire city, and school board members vote citywide or districtwide. Even though we have certain schools within our area, we always vote for what's best for the district as a whole. So, Stephen? Thank you for coming on again. I wanted to really thank you. Thank you for doing this. The last time we hit a home run, this time we're going to hit it out of the park. Sounds good. I had a number of questions for you. I kind of polled on Facebook and some other places. I asked people who had kids in the system to send me questions they'd like me to ask you. And I've distilled them down to a few here. And I thought we'd just jump right in. School districts they have to work with many different partners to fill gaps due to insufficient financial resources, you know, after the state and federal funding, right? The Claremont Unified School District works with many organizations like the Claremont Parent Faculty Association, Claremont Educational Foundation, CLASP, the Claremont After School Program. And you get to secure needed funding for tutoring, educational pathways, enrichment programs like that. And I understand that the school board members even take on year-long liaison roles with the boards of these organizations. How do you, personally, see the role and the duty of school board members when working with partner organizations? What do you think is best? The role of the school board member with partner organizations depends entirely upon the assignment to the partner organization. In some cases, we are a liaison where we provide information to an organization and take information back to the school board. We have that position with CLASP and with CEF. In other partnerships, we are actually members of that organization where we have a vote at the table and we are part of the deliberations as with the Baldy View ROP. In other words, you're on their board, is that it? Right. Okay, and the, but the others are, you're just working with them. Right. Fair enough. With the PFAs and the school site councils at the different schools, as school board members, we rotate through all the different schools, and we usually do two a year. This year, I'm the liaison to Mountain View Elementary School and Oakmont Outdoor School. So we, as liaisons, attend those meetings, find out what wonderful things are happening at those schools, report back to the school board, and also let people at the school site councils or PFAs 
know what we're doing on the school board to help their schools. So you're like the two-way communication conduit. We are. Good. So some of these also provide funding to the schools? Yes. And so your role in securing funding, how do you see that? Probably CEF is the largest fundraising organization. Right. The folks that auction off the Toyota or whatever it is. The Claremont Educational Foundation. Right, right. So we'll share information back and forth, but the expenditures are made entirely as a decision of the CEF board. So we can let them know where needs are, but we don't have a vote or say on how those fundings get distributed. But then I understand that they don't have an earmark for it. In other words, if they provide the funding to the school, it's towards the general fund. It isn't, this is for French books or something. They do have focuses. CEF has focuses on arts, education, technology, okay. and they might give a block grant to a school saying, here's $5,000 for arts education. And then the school would decide how to spend that $5,000. CEF also has something called Best Bets, which are grants that are awarded to teachers who either singly or in groups develop a program that they think would be worth funding. They submit those applications to CEF. CEF reviews the applications and decides which ones to fund. So in that case, the money is given for a very specific reason to a specific teacher or groups of teachers. Oh, nice. Okay. So a specific program or something like that might get an award. We also have partnerships with civic groups like Rotary and Kiwanis. Correct. And you're, you're a member there, I know, right? I'm a Kiwanian, yes. I'm always proud when that big check is presented to the school district at a school board meeting. I always see you at the pancake breakfasts and, the, and, and places like that that it's like, ah, I must be in the right place. There's Stephen. Right. And like I'd like to say about Kiwanis pancakes, if they were any fresher, they would be batter. That's right. <laughs> I go there, for, but I, I tell you, I go there for the sausage and to kind of network. Being a school board member, it's important. It's demanding. It requires a lot of commitment and time. And you above all know that. And you've been on the board for 16 years. This is no surprise. Correct. And the question I'm going to ask might be just kind of a, um, oh, a hint to those who are looking to aspire to become school board members. The time commitment goes far beyond bi-monthly meetings and occasional school events. It takes a lot of time. So it, from what I understand, it's almost like a part-time job. Is that fair? That's a very fair statement to make because not only do we have our bi-monthly board meetings, we have binders full of information we have to read before we get to those meetings. Right. We meet with the superintendent to discuss our questions or concerns about items coming up on that meeting. So just for the meeting itself, there's probably at least as much time as we spent in the boardroom, we spend at our houses looking at the materials who were prepared for the meeting. Doing your homework. In other Doing words. our homework, yes. In a school metaphor. Correct. We also have, as I said, those liaison schools that we rotate through. Mm -hmm. So those are, they can be two to four meetings a month, usually one a month. So we rotate. And I want to mention about that school rotation liaison position. The current board wants to continue the rotation. So we will be rotating through schools that are not even in our election area, just so that we can continue to be well-versed on issues at all schools around the district. So rather than over-focused on one, you understand the issues of all. And that was a conscious decision. We're trying to, as broadly as possible, make sure school board members represent 
and understand as many schools as possible. Not a bad goal at all. And although I've seen the way districting was done at some school districts that have resulted in balkanization. Meaning they only know what they know from their local group? They know the school within their elected boundaries very well, and maybe not the other schools as well at all. Partly because it probably takes all their time just to learn and deal with the schools in their designated area. But you're right. To be a representative of all is really the goal, right? I think so, yes. I can't imagine what the counter-argument would be. Why is it important to you to take on this type of time commitment? First of all, are we talking, do you think it's 20 hours a week or 40 hours a week? And then why is this, what's driving you to do this? It absolutely depends on the week, how many hours it is. It could easily be 10 to 12 hours a week. It could be two hours a week. Mm. It really depends on what's happening. Is there a lot happening at the schools? Is it going to be a big board agenda that we need to prepare for? It really does vary. But conscientiously, making sure that we are at events is helpful because sometimes it's the only place people will see us as board members and they can come and ask us their questions or share their concerns with us. That also happens at the produce section, at Ralph's or Vaughn's or Super King. Some people feel more comfortable speaking to us at school events. They don't want to bother us when we're on our personal time. But there really is no personal time. We're public servants, so I hope anyone in the public feels comfortable coming to say hello or sharing their thoughts. I think that accessibility, like you're saying, is key. Yes. Anybody, you know, who would be isolated would, I think, be running counter to exactly the whole philosophy of the position. And of course, we also have the flexibility of receiving emails at any time of the day or night. So in addition to our face-to-face interactions, we get emails that we respond to. Sometimes you have to refer them to the superintendent because no board member wants to be a micromanager. So if it's something we know, we can reply. If it's an issue that requires action, the best thing we do is either refer them to the site principal or site administration. And if they've already done that, we refer them to the superintendent because he can best direct where those questions can be handled fully. That's his function, if nothing else, right? Correct. Now, in the past few years, and this might be a little bit of a, a cautious question, diversity, equitability, and inclusion practices have been on the forefront of people's conversations. It comes up all the time. And I think for good reasons. Maybe things in the past weren't so diverse, equitable, or inclusionary. It's, you know, local, it's national, it's regional, it's right here in Claremont. And obviously you can affect local and then it contributes to the changes that happen nationally. What do you think about this focus on DEI, especially in public education? And what are you, just you by yourself, really, looking to do to support these kind of initiatives? I am so glad that we do have a focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion, because as a society, we haven't always had that focus. And it's important that we address past wrongs because they become sometimes unconscious biases or systemic problems that aren't treating everyone fairly. I don't know that Claremont has the problem other parts of the country does. When I look at our statistics, I think we do a pretty good job, but there are areas where we fall down. We do not have nearly the diversity in our teaching staff that we do in our student body or our community. That's an issue you want to solve, but it's not one that we can solve overnight. It's a big ship and takes a long time to 
to steer, in other words. Right. There are some things we can do easily, and we do. One of the things that the task force, the District Advisory Committee on Diversity, Equity, Inclusion recommended was an ongoing body to look at and examine the recommendations that came out of that District Advisory Committee and make sure that we are living up to our goals of truly being equitable, diverse, and inclusive. So we have the Equity Advisory Council, the EAC, and they meet regularly through the course of the year, charting our progress to the goals we have said we want to reach and giving us feedback as a school board, letting us know where we are meeting those goals, where we are making progress on goals, and where we have not addressed goals that we have said we want to do. In a sense, it sounds like in a school metaphor, they give you a report card. That's a very astute way to put it. I don't have children. I don't know necessarily. And I hope the people listening know a little more than I do. But how long has this committee been in place? The District Advisory Committee on Equity, Inclusion, and Diversity Correct. met for over a year. Starting? It's starting 2020, oh, I okay. believe. I think I can accurate in the year. In the middle of the pandemic, of Not course. sure I can say the month, but I'm pretty sure that was the That's year. That's okay. The District Advisory Committee on Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion was made up of representatives from the schools, including students, staff, and faculty. It also included community members. So it was a very broad group that approached and examined these issues in our district. Kind of like an audit? Not just an audit. An audit examines what's there. The DAC examined what we need. What are we lacking? They make a roadmap. They do. But more than a roadmap, they make a wish list. They make an analysis, like a mechanic checking a car and saying, this is going to blow in a little while. You need to take care of this right away. Or this is what's going to be a problem in the future. Yeah, the brake pads are almost worn out. It's like time. Right. Right. So that group met for over a year. Their recommendations were brought to the school board. The school board heard the presentation, agreed, I think, with the recommendations. And I don't think we took out a single one and referred it to district staff to make sure it gets implemented. As I said, we also adopted the approach that was recommended to have a equity advisory council that continues to meet regularly. Okay. Is that like an oversight group then? or An oversight group would not actually be a good term for it. I think what they do is more an analytical group, seeing what we say we want to do and analyzing our achievements in meeting those goals we want and where we need to improve on meeting those goals we want. A scorecard. A scorecard would be appropriate. Yeah, I'm in the quality industry and that is everything. You know, in other words, where are you now? Where do you want to be? And over time, how are you getting there? Everybody realizes nobody's perfect, but you don't a, want to get worse nor stay static. You want to make progress. And if you can measure it and you can then make some changes and improve, correct? Correct. The tricky thing is not everyone agrees on what progress is. Because this is less, this is a little more subjective. Progress is in a manufacturing world would be like units produced per month goes up. Oh, okay, good. You know, there's progress, I guess. But in your sphere, what kind of things would be, let's say, soft progress that might have some argument to them? I'm not, I don't know what soft progress is. In other words, it's hard to measure. 
In other words, it's soft in the in terms you just can't quantify it so easily. And it's even tricky with the people who do agree, because even if a lot of people agree on all these goals, there may be different priorities. Oh, that's so, always the case. Sure. Yes. Yes. Not an easy thing to do, but we're doing our best to do it. And then as a report to the folks that are listening, you're, in your opinion, you're making good progress? We are making good progress in some areas. Okay. Like I said, there are some areas that it's not possible for us to act immediately. What I think is wonderful is right now the district is doing our strategic plan. Mm -hmm. It's usually done every five years. It's actually been seven years or more since we've last done this. So we're in the midst of creating a strategic plan for where the district will go for the next five years. In that planning, we are including the recommendations from the district advisory committee and working with the equity advisory council so that our strategic plan will embrace and encompass those goals that were developed by one, the original district advisory committee and supported by the Equity Advisory Council. So in, in the time that this has been going on, though, you're seeing, in your opinion, reasonable progress. Yes. Okay. That's all I was really asking. <laughs> and if and if not, what would you do to change it on something? Is it, what you're vying for is a position to do just that, is to be part of the group that makes those changes, right? Absolutely. I want to make sure that every student knows that they are seen and valued for who they are regardless of what they are. Very well put. Okay. Maybe that leads us right into our next question here. Many people believe that systemic racism continues to plague our country. And even though, depending on how you want to measure it, it may be different than it used to be, it still isn't completely gone. And it exists as well in our educational systems, maybe as a part of the standard curriculum. In other words, it's built in rather than just happens. Students, should they be taught how systemic racism has historically shaped American culture and how it impacts the world today? If, if you think so, why so? And what types of measures do you think the board members can take to remove barriers that affect BIPOC students? So in terms of BIPOC students mm -hmm. and curriculum, systemic racism should definitely be taught. There are people who think I didn't own slaves. My ancestors didn't own slaves. What's the problem? Some people don't realize we have had redlining in our properties, in our homes, that prevented people of different races from living in certain areas or in living in neighborhoods that had really good schools. That has happened as recently as within the past 50 years in some parts of this country. People forget that within my lifetime, there were states where it was against the law for blacks and whites to marry. That was just finally overturned in 1978, not that long ago when you're my age. That's right. So there is systemic racism that has happened a lot more recently than the enslavement of people or the enslavement of a race. Like I understand, for instance, is it Levittown out on Long Island? The banks were like, no, we're not loaning money to black people that's going to prevent them from buying a house. So what did you have? You had a pretty white neighborhood. And I honestly had never heard that before until this year. And I thought, that's horrible. Or the destruction in Oklahoma of a thriving black town that was just destroyed with white rioters coming in and burning the city down. 
which thanks to the TV show Watchmen, I learned about. And yet this happens over and over again. There were unfortunate medical experiments. The Tuskegee experiments. Right. And yet the Tuskegee folks in World War II were some of the most decorated airmen there were. Is that right? Yes. What are you doing? You're obviously hurting the best people you've got. My husband is Japanese and his parents were interned. His father fought in the 4022nd Go For Broke unit in Europe, which was the most highly decorated army unit of World War II. Meanwhile, his relatives and Glenn's mother were incarcerated. In like Manzanar or something? Yes. And that is also not that far away. So that all of these Japanese Americans whose property was taken from them or which they had to sell for pennies on the dollar because they weren't going to be around to maintain it. Businesses that they had to sell for penny on the dollars or just abandoned because they were being relocated and couldn't do their businesses anymore. These are setbacks, and they're setbacks that were enforced upon these races by our government. And the repercussions still exist. It's a multi-generation effect. In other words, it's hard to build wealth, let's say, if one whole generation is stripped of it. Absolutely. That's a very good way to put it. Okay. And it isn't black or white. It's anybody. True. We had some, let's say, anti-Asian activity earlier this year. It had to do with the pandemic and this and that. And everybody was somehow blaming the folks from here that were from, say, China for the problem. It's no, they were here. Or the round people who suffer discrimination because it's some of them are assumed to not speak English or to be drug dealers, or as one person said, and a few of them are good people too. Right. But now in the schools, how does this manifest itself? And as a school board member for this many years and a hopeful for four more, how do you propose to, let's say, steer the boat in the proper direction? This is one of those areas where I said progress is being made, but not everyone agrees it's progress. When the State Board of Education is considering inclusive curriculum or even an ethnic studies class as a high school graduation requirement to let people know some of the things that are not taught or were not taught so that everyone knows the contributions and the challenges that different people, other races, have suffered and overcome. There are people who are opposed to that sort of education. Well, there are people who say that truth is making my child feel uncomfortable because they're white and they're feeling guilty for things they did not do. That's wrong. The truth is the truth. Yes. Math is not comfortable, and yet we insist people learn it. But also math is not racist. I won't go that far. I look at the white mathematicians, and I also look at hidden figures where there were black women who were called computers or women who were called computers, but they did their math in one wing where the white female computers did theirs in another. Or then maybe let me rephrase it because I've seen that movie and the math in and of itself is just math. Right. How you treat that is differently. Absolutely. But even in something as cut and dry as math, there are areas for racism to abound. And sexism as well. Um, Absolutely. My wife's uncle and aunt got married 
and he married his calculator. He was part of the defense department, and so was she, and he was on the engineering and planning group, and they had these huge equations and everything. They just didn't have time to do, and they had rooms full of ladies who would sit there and just crunch the numbers, and it wasn't until after the invasion of D-Day that they all found out all the ladies found out that's what numbers they were crunching is what if the weather's this, what are the losses? What if the opposition's that, what are the losses and what they, these, and they kept them separate, but it always seemed like the men came up with the problems and the ladies solved them, but he got to meet her. And then he says, yeah, I married my calculator. So I can see where that would say that would be sexist, but that doesn't mean the math in and of itself had any bias. True. There we go. Okay. So. You mentioned about having someone, five-year-old, feel uncomfortable or feel as if all the sins of the past are their fault, isn't that, that we just discussed? And I agree that really that isn't fair either. It shouldn't be put upon the sins of the father. It shouldn't be put upon the son. They weren't there. Uh, that's kind of a straw man because I have never heard a five-year-old accused of the racism in this country. They might be informed of the racism of this country, but they've never been blamed for it. Okay. Here, otherwise, that they actually are somehow set aside, oh, this is your fault type of thing. And I'm like, how can that be? I have they... never witnessed it. Okay. Either in the schools that I tour at Claremont or the classrooms where I teach, the schools where I teach, I have heard people say that. But just because something's repeated often doesn't mean it's true. You mean everything on Facebook isn't fact? Well, on my page it is. But I cannot take responsibility for the comments of my friends. There you go. And, and as I say, I don't have kids. I don't know firsthand. But it's what I hear. Really, you're the expert. You're there. You're in the classrooms. You're the super. You're the president. And you would know better. I can understand a five-year-old coming home sad to find out that people have been treated badly. And a parent thinking, my child is upset because he was accused of it. That doesn't mean that's what happened, but I could see how that interpretation might occur. He inferred that, or uh, right, and it, maybe not correctly. Okay, so then, to that end, do you endorse teaching critical race theory in public schools or at all? The only places where critical race theory is actually taught is at the college level, in specific law courses. But there are people who conflate critical race theory with examining the treatment of races critically, which is a very different and important thing. Would you be so kind as to explain the difference to our listeners? I don't understand critical race theory or know enough about it to say what it is, but I do know that it isn't taught at our schools. Okay. What is taught is a critical examination of interactions between races and treatment of races. Difficult topics, painful topics, but not critical race theory. But what you're talking about is this is what actually happened, like it or not, even if it makes them someone uncomfortable or shocks them a little bit. Criticism is not a bad thing. Right. It's how we improve. Theater critics, their profession is pointing out things that go well and things that could be improved. And if we discuss racism in a critical way that shows us where we can improve and where we've made gains, 
I find nothing wrong with that. I think that sort of discussion is appropriate for classrooms. And constructive criticism should be welcomed, right? In other words, what are we going to change? That, that I welcome constructive criticism. Okay. So I, but I know not everybody does. But I'm interviewing you. So, so, that, I, so your position is bring it on. Am I right? Right. There are some, there's also the attitude that we should take politics out of the classroom. Social studies is about politics. We have a civics class that is focused on politics as a graduation requirement. And then there are people who call political issues issues with which they disagree. If they agree with it, it's not political. But if they disagree with it, then it's a political issue that should not be discussed. So it's, and I guess the word is groom, but it also might be channels the education in a direction that they want to go without showing both sides. There might not be people who want both sides taught or might not be comfortable with one side or the other. Right. I've often said that the definition of an activist judge is a judge I don't agree with. So then that applies to books in the library as well. In, in the national news recently, there have been many stories about state, city councils, school boards, restricting, banning access to books that had themes and topics they didn't like, whether it be race or sex, gender identity, or anything. For instance, what would you take out of the library, if anything? Or are you for no restrictions on books in the library? And if some, what would they be and why? This is a very difficult and nuanced question without easy answers. Books contain knowledge, and in many times, it's the only avenue for some students to get this information. There are high schools that have 18-year-olds who are adults, and I have no problem with them having access to any book in the school library. I have, in Claremont, seen no requests to ban any of our books. Oh, okay. I'm very happy about that. My hometown of Burbank has a school board that has removed books from the libraries. So they have also kept some books in the libraries, but took them off the required reading lists that some teachers have used. So there's ways of limiting access to books besides just banning them. Correct. And not allowing teachers to teach them without taking them out of the library is one way of doing that. Some of these are classics, such as The Tales of Huckleberry Finn. When it was written, it was not a racist book. Because that's how things were. Exactly. And there's something called presentism, where you judge people in the past by today's standards. I am old enough to know that there are things that I have said or friends have said when I was in college that are completely inappropriate now. It doesn't mean we're inappropriate people, and that should be respected. I don't think beating people up with today's yardstick because they didn't adhere to it before today's yardstick was a measurement tool is fair. So taking a book like Huckleberry Finn or Tom Sawyer out, which are probably in the top 10 of uh, American well-read classics, right? I'll accept that. Or top 20. Sure. I mean, They're um, American classics. Period. And to call Huck Finn racist when one of the most stable relationships in that young man's life was with, was with an enslaved black man 
doesn't make sense to me. Nothing could be more counter to the philosophy, right? Right. To show blacks and whites working together to help each other achieve goals is a great message to send. But if that message is getting lost because of language which was used as it was at that time, is like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And then what would you do? Throw out everything? I mean, since the beginning of history, I mean, you can look at the pyramids, but the, you can also say, yeah, these were built by slaves. Yes, by enslaved Jewish people. And was that the right thing to do? I bet you not everybody would think so. Of course not. But it doesn't take away the fact that, all right, that's how it was then. Let's appreciate it for what it is. Or even the phrase rule of thumb which is a completely sexist statement because it meant that a man could beat his wife with a stick no thicker in diameter than his thumb. Didn't know that. So then a book like Mein Kampf would be something you would not oppose. No, I am opposed to censorship. Yeah. I am not opposed to age-appropriate instruction or age-appropriate literature. Things like Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye, which explicitly describes sex, not appropriate for middle school, maybe not even appropriate for a first-year high school person, but maybe we'll have discussions that will educate and illuminate a high school senior. And if at that age they can make their own decisions, I mean, that's the whole legality of it, right? Um, if it's a library book, yes. If it's part of the classroom curriculum, then they don't get to make the choice. They have to read it. They read it. Right. And... When I taught sixth grade, we taught the Greek myths. And I had a parent come up to me and say, we are a Christian family that believes in one God. I don't want my son reading about Greek myths. So I developed a separate curriculum for that boy. And this was when I first started teaching 25, 27 years ago. I just moved out to the Colton area where I teach. And I don't think I was unique as a teacher developing a curriculum that was sensitive to the family and still met the educational goals. But I would have felt it completely inappropriate for that parent to say, we are a Christian family. I don't think this class should learn about Greek myths. That I would have fought. And the fact that they're literally myths makes me wonder what's the harm. I made that argument. It didn't work. So I made a curriculum that would. You'll always find a way. If we're willing to work with each other instead of just draw lines in the sand. Do you see that as kind of the l late evolution where it's just no? Let's not discuss it. Let's not figure it out. It's just no. It's cancel culture. Right. This is too hard to discuss, so we won't discuss it. This is too hard for me to explain to my children, so you will not teach it. Rather than find a way to explain it and do the work. I'm not going to say that people who are opposed to certain books just don't want to do the work of understanding it. But I also don't think they should be able to say what all families are allowed to have their students taught. Well put. Okay. I think recently the school board, did they re-up on the school resource officer? We are continuing to have the school resource officer on our campuses. Right. And so whether or not to continue, that decision has been made. At this point, yes. The city council adopted an option that continues to support a school resource officer. And it was a vote to pick an option that was developed by five individuals 
three of whom were appointed by the city, so the majority was appointed by the city, and did not have input from district personnel. At that same city council meeting, there was an option B that was presented to the city council that included ideas that were developed by city staff and district administrators working in tandem to develop an approach to the student resource officer that made a lot of sense to me, much more sense than what was presented in option A developed by five people. The city council was also presented with option C from Superintendent Jim Alsasser, who spoke during public comments and said, here is option A, here is option B. I know there are problems with both of them. The school district is open to an option C where members of the city council and the school board and the city manager and the superintendent can bring the different views together and develop a third option that will satisfy most people. Instead of opting for an option C, instead of saying, what sort of collaborative discussion can we have between our two bodies? The city council went for option A. But since it is a partnership, it is not being implemented because how the SRO functions has to be an agreement through a memo of understanding developed by both the city council and the school board. And so the city council and the school board do not agree. I don't know what the school board will agree to because we have not had that as an agenda item. I believe we're going to be discussing it October 17th. Oh, I see. How that's going to be presented to the school board, I'm not sure. I imagine at the very least, we'll be presented with option A and option B as the city council was. I don't know how the rest of the school board is going to vote, but I already have my problems with option A. Are those something you'd like to air now or no? If not, we can move on. Okay, let's move on. I don't want to take the thunder out of the October 17th meeting. We can have you back after that. I'm not sure what the resolution about the SRO is going to be. I am glad the discussion is how will we have an SRO, then whether or not we will have an SRO. So to have one at all is better than to not, and then to have it in what context is what the option A's and B's are about. Yes. Okay, very good. You're at least partway there then, right? We are. Both bodies agree to have an SRO. So if we're going to build on common ground, that would be the foundation of our collaborations going forward. What I understood from, I think I talked to Chief Vanderveen and a couple others, that so far the SRO has really been a positive maneuver since the beginning. There really doesn't look like it in total was a bad idea at all. Is that fair? I would agree completely. There are statistics that have been presented to both the city council and the school board about problems with SRO officers, but these are from other school districts and not our own. Yes, there was something about a survey, and they said, well, why don't we worry about our schools by the statistics from our schools, and let's have reality just drive what we do. Let's not visit the sins of other school districts or other law enforcement agencies onto our SRO. To me, that's profiling, saying that this SRO is going to be like all those other SROs who are doing problems or all those other law enforcement agencies that are having problems. And legitimately, there are other police agencies and other SROs that are problems, but ours is not. 
And I would hate for that message to get lost because of statistics that don't pertain or are relevant to our community. And that's what I think she said was that if you look at how it worked out here, there's every reason to keep it and every reason to keep it. It's working out well. I agree. Now, what I interviewed Wendy Romalo, and she is the local group leader for Moms Demand Action. At the top of their list is the safe storage and handling of guns in the home. So, Stephen, as a candidate in the shadow of Uvalde and other horrific incidents, do you advocate for gun sense in the same way that Moms Demand Action do? Or if not, why not? And what do you think is appropriate? Moms Demand Action has already proven itself to be a very effective organization. In fact, there is state legislation that next year will require the proper maintaining of guns in homes, that the information about how to do so be distributed to all families, or maybe even all homes. I've only been asked this question in terms of families for at our schools. Much as you might think. I get it. Right. So I've was asked this. I discussed it with the superintendent. Right now, I believe in the process, the group is going to be addressing the Claremont PFA, Parent Faculty Association, which is a body made up of parent representatives from every school in the district, so that the schools can decide how or when they will share that information with their students. I'm not sure that it is a school board issue since it's already covered by legislation. So I don't know that we need to take action to get something done because something will be done next year. If we do something this year, it won't be until after January because we have a lot of things on our burners right, right now. Sure. We have that strategic plan we need to d develop. We have the SRO we need to iron the wrinkles out of. We have at least two new school board members to welcome to the diet. Sometimes saying not now is taken as a no, when simply it's a not yet. But it's on the docket. It's on the list at some point. State legislation requires it to be. Okay. And she and I talked a little bit about active shooter drills in the schools. I thought active shooter drills were a good idea. And she said, not so much in every case that sometimes, in a nutshell, it freaks people out. And maybe it doesn't really have the results that it should. Is that something you'd like to talk about? There are different types and degrees of active shooter drills. Okay. Some are as innocuous as a fire drill, where students are told, get under your desks, we're turning off the lights, we're locking the door, there is an intruder on campus, and we are going into lockdown until it is safe. And that is one form of active shooter drill. There is another active shooter drill where we are told to barricade our entry points into our classroom, where the students are told to sit on the carpet or sit on the floor in the corner furthest away from entering to the classroom to barricade the door with a pile of desks, anything to slow the shooter down to keep them from getting into a classroom and killing students right. or the teacher. I hate that we have to do those drills 
because it's frightening because it makes it very real that there is someone with a gun who will come and do harm on our campus. The rationale for the barricade drill is that if we can just delay the shooter until police arrive, then we can save lives. Now, in Uvalde, it didn't seem to matter because the police were there and just took so long to really do anything. I don't imagine that there's another law enforcement force in the country that wants to be referred to as Uvalde too. I believe and hope that anytime there is an active shooter on a campus, that as soon as the police get there, they will interact to subdue or mitigate the situation. Good word. So in that kind of a case, an extra minute or two might be just the time you need. Right. In an Ovaldi case, an extra minute or two is just an extra minute or two. Another part of the barricade drill is to practice or prepare for what would happen if the shooter got through the barricade of desks. Things like throwing books, staplers, or every classroom has a fire extinguisher, using that to batter the shooter just to harass them so that they can, so they will do less damage or less killing. According to what I've been told, as a classroom teacher who goes through active shooter training and active shooter drills, they're looking for easy targets. The harder you make it for an active shooter to kill someone, the more likely they are to go somewhere else. It doesn't mean it stops them from killing other people, but it stops them from killing where we are. There's even a third type of active shooter drill, and this is the one that is controversial. It's an active shooter drill where there is an actor who is pretending to be an active shooter, who has a gun, who is pretending to shoot people. And I don't know if the gun fires blanks or makes a noise. Or paintballs or what? I, no, it wouldn't be paintballs. It, that would not make it seem like a real right. thing. Okay. They're going for verisimilitude. They want it to be as realistic as possible so that teachers and students will have the experience of having done a dress rehearsal for an actor's shooter. That is extremely traumatic. And I think the biggest objection was to an actor shooter drill where the students and staff didn't know it was a drill. I think... Like a surprise fire drill. How do people really act when they don't know it's coming? I think that incident is what caused the biggest uproar about active shooter drills. I don't think all active shooter drills are bad, but I think the ones that involve actors that realistically portray shooters are very traumatic. And I would not want that type of drill at our schools. And I think that might have been what she was referring to, is that some type of drills, just the psychotrauma that they create, can be bad and long-lasting to the point that you're doing more harm than good. And the differentiation I would make is there's an active shooter drill and there's the acting shooter drill, where they have someone acting like a shooter. And that is indeed traumatic. And would be something you would prefer to avoid? I would not recommend it or endorse it. Okay. And then, and this is what we're here for, is to have people understand your position and fair is fair. That's where you stand. The 
lockdown active shooter drill where students are under the desks, even the barricading, the classroom active shooter drill. I don't want them, but I understand the need for them. But the third type, the acting, you think it, it truly... The acting shooter drill it goes may too do, far. It may do more harm than good. Yes. Okay. Well, that was her position, if I understood her right. And of course, as I said, I'm not in the schools and I don't know, but I could instantly, I could see her in yeah. your point. Okay. Another aspect about the active shooter drill is when we have heard rumors of active shooters. If students are overheard in a restroom discussing the possibility of active shooting happening the next Real day. Real active shooting, not a drill. Right. One of them telling another, I'm planning to bring a gun to school tomorrow. And it's overheard and it's reported to side administration. That instantly triggers, I wish there was a better word to use. Sure. A response where the school administration contacts district administration and coordinates with the police department to ascertain, if possible, who made the threat, who made the verbal threat, ascertain how credible a threat it is, and to inform families that a threat was made. Even with the disclaimer that the police don't feel this is a credible threat, but this is what we have heard. And we let the families decide what risk level they want to take for the following day as to whether their kids attend school or not. And the following day, we have increased police presence on the campus where the threat was made and surrounding schools. And you have to do that because that's the only safe bet. Of course. It's not an abundance of caution. In that instance, it's reasonable caution. Because the verbalization of the threat was real, so you have to take real measures. Of course. Okay. As I said, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, just trying to crystallize and maybe help understand what you're saying. It's sort of a Pascal's wager. Explain. Pascal was a philosopher who said, there might not be a God, but if you follow the commandments, it's much less onerous than eternity in hell. So applying that to the rumor of a shooter, it may not be a real shooting, but that preparation is a lot better than if it is an actual active shooter. Having an inflatable raft of flood that may come. So if you don't need it, you're no worse off. And if you do need it, you're glad to have, you had it. Right. Same thing with the drill. You're glad you did it even if nothing was the, there's no downside. Right. However, if you don't do it and something happens and you could have prevented it, that's the worst of all. Exactly. Stephen, you are fantastic. This is working out way beyond even my expectations. I wanted to see if we can do one more, if you have the time. Stephen, mental health has been an issue for many people over the last few years. Recognizing it, taking steps to take care of it. Students especially have been impacted by disruptions in their lives as well as significant personal losses, whether it be a family member or even just the knock-on effect, if you want to call it that, of these shootings like we were just talking about. Claremont's not that different than Evaldi or Highland Park or any place, right? So I think the kids get a little freaked out. I think everyone supports mental health. 
But what areas do you think within CUSD need to improve and how specifically would you lead CUSD to improve upon the ways it currently addresses mental health, mental health care for its students? Mental health is an area where the school district has definitely evolved to become more responsive to the needs of our students. Part of it is because of concerns brought to the school district and the school board from parents who are concerned about their own children mm -hmm. or their children's friends. Part of the improvement has been research done by the Kaiser Permanente Foundation that talks about trauma-informed responses to students. Understanding now, what does that mean exactly? Trauma-informed. Some students may be acting out because of trauma in their home life. Oh, they bring it to school and these are like flags? Right. And sometimes they're flags we don't see. Is the sullen child who has stopped doing homework all of a sudden going through some trauma we don't know about? This week, one of my own students in my fifth grade after recess asked if he could talk to me privately. So I'd let the class in. They started the assignment. I took him to the doorway so he could be outside the classroom and no one could hear what he said and I could make sure that the rest of the classroom was on task and safe. And he broke down in tears because his father had lost his job. He was afraid that they were going to lose their house and have to move. And he shared that with me and he was in tears. I was maintaining. I was so proud that he could share that and had trust and faith in me. And told him, come on in, and I'll get you an appointment to talk to the school counselor. So he wiped his eyes, he came in, he did the assignment, and I called the school counselor and set up an appointment for him that day. So that's a trauma-informed response, treating the child not like they have a deficit, but like they have problems we can help solve. They are not a problem they have a problem. And I think that's a great approach to mental health for our schools. We have a student health center at the high school that's less than five years old. And it's a building, not a large one, but it's a building set up for student health. We have clinicians in our district. We have student interns who want to be psychologists or social workers at our school sites available to help students. We have partnership with Tri-City Mental Health based in Pomona. They have an office right on Indian Hill, by the way. Yes. And you know my friend there, Remy? Yes. I didn't know she was your friend. Anybody that's done my podcast, I call my friend. <laughs> and she actually has the number, I think, three most popular podcasts of all Claremont Speaks. I'm not surprised. It's an issue that hits more families than we know. That's right. And she was begging for people to please don't cave into the stigma. Right. The macho, I don't need help stigma. She says, even if you're just having a bad day, and it sounds like your student wasn't a, an endemic problem or something, but it's a bad day problem. No one's problems are as big as our own. It's not what we think the size of the problem is. The size of the problem is determined by the person having it. And that's part of trauma-informed approach. Nice. I, I think that I certainly learned something. So with this trauma-informed approach, then 
Do you have a, I don't know, a methodology of responding to it? There are services that do training through a company that is based on trauma-informed approaches. But in Claremont schools, we're fortunate enough that we have professionals on staff. And as I said, those partnerships with Tri-City, that we don't need to buy something off the shelf. We have a lot of those approaches that we're already implementing, and we have the opportunity to implement them better or in different ways because of our work hmm. with other organizations. Because I'm such a fan of Tri-City, the partnership with them, that's worked out over the last few years fairly well? Yes. I don't say we reach and serve every person who needs it, but we reach more than we would have without that partnership. There we go. And it's also a partnership with the city as well. The city used to have something called navigators that would help people maneuver the mental health or social support systems. Because not every person who needs social support knows exactly how to get it. So there was a program. Unfortunately, it doesn't exist in the same format right now. But the navigators were someone who would be on call. Someone goes to the website and says, hey, I need help. The navigator would say, so these are the issues as I understand them. Here are the resources where you can go. Because a lot of people, when they finally do reach out for help, don't necessarily know where to reach. And if they're in the midst of a crisis already, it's not the best time to try to learn where to reach. Yeah, you need help now. And you need to know where to find that help. And that's not always easy. And navigating a website is maybe not the first thing on your mind. Getting, a, getting the right number the right, at the right moment is. And it's not just not knowing how to navigate a website. It's not knowing which website to get to. Or even if it exists. Or right. even if it's still an active resource. Do you have any examples where you guys have really hit it out of the park? I know you can't speak to any individual case or anything. Not specifically. Like okay. I said, it was a while ago. I know the statistics of the numbers of people served, but not specifics. Okay. But in other words, again, you're better, way better off with it than without. Absolutely. And it's growing in its use. I mean, it, it's, let's say, gaining steam. It's being augmented. We have something called Peach Jar. And I'm not sure if it's the same system that we're currently using, but it's an anonymous app that students can use to report having overheard the threat of gun violence or reporting a friend of mine is feeling very down or I need some help with this issue. Now, it's an anonymous app. People, students can leave their names. And there's always the fear that there's going to be abuse of an anonymous app where people can make false reports. But we have found that does not happen to the extent that people might imagine. And it actually does a lot more good than you might think. So just like the young student coming to you, people trust the app to, to be honest and not just play games and let's say misuse it. Right. It, it, there has been minimal misuse and a lot of help because of it. So a plus deal all the way around. Very cool. And that is in the next four years on all the topics we've talked about. What do you see as your main achievement you're going to go after for the next four years? Stability for school board leadership is my big goal. 
and one of the main reasons I'm running. We have two wonderful board members, Bob Fass and Kathy Archer, who are in the middle of their first term. By the way, both are Claremont Speaks friends. Yes. We have two more people coming to the board, brand new, bright-eyed, enthusiastic, Catherine Dunn and Richard O'Neill. Who are unopposed. Who are unopposed. So we, they will definitely be two brand new people and two people in the middle of their first term. I think it's important that there be some long-term experience on the school board. Otherwise, it would be three brand new people and two people in the middle of their first term leading our school district. So it would almost be like a reboot. Which is sometimes risky. That's right. But I mean, one of the things that the folks that were asking about people's drive, if you will, to be part of the school board, is this something you're going to stick with? Their expectations were, in other words, if you're saying it's 20 hours a week or it has to be part of all these different groups on this board, on that committee, this liaison, that interaction, they might get overwhelmed. I think they wondered if the expectations were being set correctly so that people who were getting in would be long-term. I, I think that's true. There are also the flip side where people who think two terms or three terms is enough. And I can understand that outlook. One of my experiences is being part of the Los Angeles County Student Trustee Association, where I am on the board in a group that represents the 80-plus school districts in L.A. County where we come together and share ideas. I'm also the statewide representative to the California School Board Association Delegate Assembly, which allows me to do that with colleagues from across the state mm. to find out what's happening with legislation occurring in Sacramento. And just last fall, I went to the Leaders to Leaders which had school board leaders from California speaking to leaders in Washington, D.C. about national educational issues. So, yes, there can be times where it is up to 20 hours a week, but you don't always have to do 20 hours a week. You can build up to it like I did. I think step by step. Yes. Especially for the new people. I think the conversations I've had with those who are running but haven't yet stepped up to the mic like you have, maybe they will, is that they have certain things in mind they think need to be changing. And that's what they're going to be focused on. And my guess is that once you get in, there's a lot more to it. Is that fair? I think that's very fair. One of the reasons I ran was because I thought the attendance boundaries of the schools made no sense. The Chaparral attendance boundary, there were neighborhoods next to the Chaparral Elementary School where the home school for those neighborhoods was Vista del Valle, the southernmost school in the city of Claremont. And the reason those attendance boundaries were so disjointed was because it was meant to promote diversity at each school. Sort of an ethnic gerrymander. That's one way to put it. But we also have in Claremont a system that I love, where we have school choice, where it doesn't matter where you live. If you want to go to a different elementary school than your home assigned school, 
if you want to go to one of the other elementary schools and there's room, you will get to go to one of those other elementary schools. We have seven amazing elementary schools. Each has their own personality and culture. And I know families who sent their kids to two different schools because they knew which one would address their needs of their students most effectively. In our previous interview, that was absolutely one of the things I just kind of had to step back and admire because that wasn't in place when I was a kid. And I think you said that if somebody is more interested in, for instance, STEM-type topics, there's a school for that. And that if it's more arts, there's a different school for that and they can pick. That's what we're talking about, correct? If you're a family that's interested in multi-age classrooms, there's Sycamore School, where they have combination classes and students help each other learn. If you're interested in STEM regarding outdoor education and biomes and environments, then we have our Oakmont Outdoor School. Mm. So we do have schools with different reputations and different approaches. And knowing that we have that varied offering and the ability for families in Claremont to choose those offerings is something of which I'm very proud. I inherited it, but I'm still proud of it. But you've, let's say, fostered it and maintained it ever since. I don't want to give myself too much credit, but uh, I certainly haven't voted against it. I've said many a time to not only school board candidates, but others, that the quality of Claremont schools and the value of living in Claremont is something you can draw a pretty straight line between. In other words, that if it wasn't for the schools, Claremont wouldn't be as necessarily as desirable as it is. I completely agree. And I would even include the Claremont colleges in those schools that make Claremont such a great community. Why not? I mean, there is ample evidence that many of the residents are attending the Claremont colleges. Local renters and like that are just living next to a PhD student is not the same as like living next to the Delta Tau house. Good point. Well, then, Stephen, I think we've come to the portion of the program that I like to call shameless self-promotion. One of the things I'd like for you to do is to tell people what it is you'd like to have them remember most about what we've talked about. They've listened to the podcast this far and what you'd like to have them remember most, what you'd like to have them do as a result of listening to this podcast, and then tell everybody where to get a hold of you, where to get, how to contact you, how to help your campaign, should they so choose, what, how to get a sign in their yard, if that's their thing. Take it away. I think the best takeaway in the terms of shameless self-promotion is that people realize I'm not just an experienced school board member, I'm an experienced educator. And that I know both the classroom and the boardroom, and that's a winning combination. I also want people to know how great our schools are. And we have open houses that are open to the public, but we also have schools. And open to the public whether you have a student there or not. Of course. Well, that's what, you know, some people may think it's only for parents or what have you. No. In, in fact, prospective parents go to open houses. In fact, that's how many of those parents find out how different the schools are to find out which one matches their kids' interests. So I have very little personal involvement with how individual schools are run, but I'm still very proud of them. And if anyone wants a yard sign, 
they can look at my ads in the courier and there is a website or a bit.ly where they can fill out a Google form and we will get yard signs to them. I have a campaign manager. And his name? My campaign manager is Steven Sarmiento. Mm-hmm. My treasurer is Glenn Mia. My honorary campaign manager is Homer Butch Henderson, whose wife passed away recently. And I have a student campaign manager named Claire Peterson. So, Stephen, if someone wanted to go to your website to learn more about you and contact you, what's your website address? My website is tinyurl.com slash lanusa2022. And it's L-L-A-N-U-S-A. Yes. Okay. Nice. And that'll get you to all the forms, the information, and everything, getting a yard sign or helping to volunteer, I don't know, whatever they need. Exactly. Any way they'd like to contribute or support me would be appreciated and can be done through that website. Nicely done. Very cool. Then any last thoughts? I think I've had them all. (laughs) Okay. Very good. Then Stephen Lanusa, a president of the Claremont Unified School District and candidate for District 4, thank you so much for being on Claremont Speaks once again. I think you've exceeded my expectations, which is not easy to do. I expected a lot, and I think you just blew right past that half an hour or more ago. Thank you very much. And I hope those other people you've invited will take you up on the offer. Because it's a painless and heartening experience to be able to share thoughts with the Claremont community. And, And I think this is head and shoulders above the forums, not that they're bad. But I don't think you get the kind of depth or detail that you get here. Agreed. All right. So, Stephen, thank you again. And thank you, Claremont, for being here and listening. And I hope you'll be here again next time when Claremont Speaks.